0: Hello, MJ. We're very happy to talk to you. I love your book. Oh my, do I love your book.
1: Thank you so much. I'm really excited to be here.
0: MJ Fievre. En en français, Fievre, c'est fever. This is an amazing name for a woman who's setting the world to rights, trying to get young women to portray themselves in a Positive light. (laughs) I guess guess it was.
1: was. I I can't can't begin begin to to tell you how many jokes I heard growing up, but it turned out to be the most fitting name. MJ,
0: you moved to the United States of America from Haiti in 2002. Do you have an appreciation of the fact that maybe Americans don't know anything about Haiti? Well, I got this appreciation
1: very early, actually, I remember traveling to um, America for the first time, and on the same trip, I also went to Europe, and in two occasions, people thought that I was referring to Tahiti, and I said, no, it's a Caribbean island, and I grabbed a map. I remember I was in Italy. I grabbed a map nearby, and Haiti wasn't even there. There was a dot on the map, and... (laughs) I felt like a fraud for a second trying to talk about a country that wasn't even on a map. So I have always been prepared to talk to people who don't know anything about Haiti. In the United States, though, because Haiti has been in the news lately for um, quite a few reasons. First, we had the, um, the headlines for a long time in the 80s and 90s. For, because of the boat people and more recently the earthquake. And of course, even more recently, the murder of the president of Haiti. So um, I, I don't meet a lot of people who don't know about Haiti. They just don't know the, both aspects of Haiti. They know what the news um, caster will say on TV, on the radio but they don't know the Haiti that I know,
0: that beautiful magical place where I grew up. But it's such a shame because all the connotations uh, appear to be negative. The assassination the other day uh, of the president, we and his wife was severely hurt, and still in hospital, I believe. But all the negative connotations, as you say, you talk about the magic, and that's a very important part of your life, and your creative writing, and your your storytelling as a child. But unfortunately, people don't pay attention. They're confused by the Dominican Republic. They're confused by Cuba. They also want to believe that we are all the same, that all white people are the same, that all black people are the same. Within even a neighborhood has sort of people who distinguish themselves from others. Is there a Creole-Haitian sensibility, or are there other sensibilities, and how did they relate to your upbringing? So
1: in Haiti, there there used to be um, different words for different people. And that was, of course, a consequence of years of slavery, right? Where, um, when people were being sold, they had to be described on paperwork. So for a long time, there were different words. Someone could be a marabu, someone could be a mulat. Um, But more recently, it's been just two, black and mulatto, and it depends on the color of your skin. So if you're very, very light, you're considered a mulatto and you get a lot of favors because you're considered to be more privileged you po- you you probably have money you're probably more intelligent you 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 you're probably more educated and if you're dark skin you're just called black sometimes you will be called very black if you're very dark skin so the different categories have been reduced to a few words and people tend to be judged by the color of their skin although more Recently, colorism has been, um, people have started to deal with combating colorism. For the longest time, it was just a status quo. People just accepted the fact that some people were treated better because of the color of their skin. Um, But now there is a whole movement combating the idea, um, which is wonderful because I remember growing up in Haiti in the 90s, I couldn't, for instance, um, well, I could, but it wasn't really accepted to have your hair natural. Um, um, Having your hair permed was a sign of status. So it was really looked down. um, People who were braiding their hair or just letting it grow naturally were looked down upon and if you had the money you could obviously afford to go to the hairdresser and have your hair chemically altered but you choose not to they saw it as you just um trying to uh, bring attention to yourself or going through a phase all this to answer your question to say that um in Haiti there there is a The acute awareness of one's status and color. So it's more than color, it's also about a status. There's a lot of classism in Haiti um, and your class status tends to be related to the color of your skin and how much money you make is also related to the color of your skin. Now, when I moved to the U.S., it wasn't just about colorism. All the colorism does exist within uh, the Black community. It was about um, having to carry all those labels, right? I'm Black, and most people were non-Black, just see me as Black. In the Black community, I'm Caribbean. I'm also Haitian, and those words carry some prejudice as well. Um, Caribbean people are taught to 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 be, this, to be um, we, we have a reputation for looking down on people. And of course the reputation is not always true, but um, it, it's just one of those characteristics that is very prevalent in the US. Oh, she's from the Caribbean. She'll, she'll look down on you if you're African-American. And when it comes to Haitian for a long time, and to some level even today, Haitian was used as a curse word because of the news. So um, Haitians were supposed to be dirty. They were supposed to, to, um, to lack if elegance. It was everything that people didn't want to be because in the news, we were both people. We were refugees. And I know many people went to school in the US who had to deal with those labels because they were from Haiti. So I guess um, once you belong to the black community, it's easier for you to realize the differences Um, in how people see you depending on where you are and who you're interacting with and it's so easy for people who are not part of the black community to just put general labels but those labels really don't mean much because there are so many different cultures so many different um, ideologies within the black culture that it's It's dangerous to try to label an entire group of people um, with one word just because of their skin color.
0: I started saying people don't know much about Haiti. And it's three-eighths of Hispaniola, the the second largest island in the greater Antilles, third largest country in the Caribbean, behind Cuba and the Dominican Republic. Now, what is curious, of course, people don't know. I met someone the other day who was going to the Dominican Republic And I said, uh, do you think it's okay to go? Because Jovenel Moyes' assassination, I said, are you still going? You share a 360-kilometer border with the Dominican Republic. Now, but tell me about being in Florida and not being a Dominican or not being a Cuban.
1: So the relationship with the Dominican Republic is very complex. And to tell you the truth, uh, personally, Um, I know that they they are our neighbors, but I've never felt the kind of connection um, to say, okay, they're our neighbors and we share so much that there's this kind of, unity or this strong connection between me and people from the Dominican Republic. So there are a lot of people from the DR in the United States. And when we meet, we do acknowledge each other. Oh, we are neighbors. But it's like that neighbor that you see occasionally and wave at, but you've never really had a conversation with. Um, that's my personal relationship with the Dominican Republic. I've only been once and Um, I mean, it was very a striking resemblance in terms of how our roads are created and some areas was was so reminiscent of Haiti in terms of architecture and landscape that I was totally taken aback. I felt like I was in a parallel universe visiting Haiti. Only everyone was speaking Spanish. So my relationship with the Dominican Republic is not strong, but there are many people in Haiti who definitely... Um, who are definitely connected to the Dominican Republic because their parents might have come from there or they have family members there. There are so many Haitians in the Dominican Republic. Um, So I try to look outside of myself and understand the relationship between the two countries. And when um, I meet people here in Florida who are from the DR. Uh, after we acknowledge each other as neighbors, I try my best to get to know them and figure out, okay, what, how do they feel about Haiti being next door? Do they feel any kind of connection? And usually, unless they have uh, family connections um, that that are Haitian, meaning maybe someone married someone from Haiti or they share um, ancestors or whatever the case might be, they also don't feel any connection to Haiti. They consider Haitians to be other, um, and a lot of them consider Haitians to to be those invaders that are um, leaving Haiti and and affecting their own country in a negative way, which, of course, we know in reality, Haiti does a lot for the Dominican Republic. Um, half of our uh, of the products that we import um, in Haiti come from the Dominican Republic. So we defi- definitely contribute to their economy a whole lot. And the Haitians in the Dominican Republic are hardworking individuals for the most part. Um, and they, they are definitely underpaid when compared to how much Dominicans, make for the same job. So um, they are contributing to the economy, but they are still considered to be other, even when they become Dominicans um, illegally, right? So um, the connection is there and it's not, yes, we share the same island, but it's as if, it's almost as if Uh, we could just be separated by water. It just so happened that we're not separated by water, that we just have um, uh, an earthly kind of um, frontier, right? But um, on both sides, there's been efforts made to fix the relationship, right? And when I am in the U.S. and I meet people from the Dominican Republic, because we have a loaded history, a violent history, Um, at first there's this little, uh, there's recognition but then this little awkwardness because we're not supposed to like each other, then there is open conversation. So, Uh, Most people don't know, you're right. They they know about Haiti, but they don't know where Haiti is located. They don't know that it's next to the Dominican Republic. And there's always this shock when people learn it. They're like, but the Dominican Republic is so is doing so great. It's one of those places you go on vacation because it's beautiful and it's modern. And they have a hard time reconciling the idea of a, a country that is portrayed as poor and violent and, and just dangerous, are uh, sharing the same space with a country that is doing well.
0: You came to Florida when you were 21, and I'm afraid we have to tell people a little of the history of Haiti because I'm sure it very much influenced your move to Florida to go to Barry University and study. The other thing about Haiti they know is Papa Doc, um, Baby Doc, the Duvaliers who ruled Haiti and then Jean-Bertrand Aristide in 1990 when he was elected. And there was a US-led invasion to remove the regime installed by Papadoc. So you were brought up with this whole political turmoil, the relative politics, not how it's influenced you, but it must make a huge difference, I imagine, You must have been affected in a way that perhaps your friends, neighbours, colleagues who are African in America cannot begin to understand. Have you thought about that and how does it impact you?
1: Oh, absolutely. I mean, I've had conversations with friends. I mean, um, when I talk about the black community, whether in in my books or uh, when I mention it to other people, I always make sure to specify that I'm not referring just to the Haitian community, right? It's about um, people from different Black um, segments coming together to form a community and having conversations. And um, I've definitely, I've had very deep conversations about what it means to be Haitian and struggling. Um, There is a certain understanding because there is a a lot that we have in common, the African-American um, people in the United States and Haitian people. We understand corruption, for instance. We, we understand um, institutional racism, how a system, systemic racism, how a system can be put in place so that the people who are at the, at the bottom of the ladder have a very hard time going up. In Haiti, it's a matter of status, as I mentioned, classism is a big um, fixture in Haiti and in the United States. uh, I mean, it's a racism, right? So they understand the idea of um, a people fighting to get what they need to to survive. Um, there is a little bit of disconnect when it comes to um, how we think about ourselves, I think. And that's why Caribbean people they tend to have a reputation like, oh, you think you're all that, you're looking down on other people. Um, in Haiti particularly, we've been independent for so long. We've been a, a, an all-Black nation for a long time, meaning that Um, very early, you would travel to Haiti and and Black people would occupy important positions. They would have uh, all kinds of jobs. In the United States, um, agency for Black people is pretty recent. I mean, there are still people who are alive, who remember slavery, right? And of course, I'm not talking about modern slavery. I'm talking about slavery um, in the traditional sense, people in shackles and um, in legally being used as, uh, as um, possessions, right? So um, there are people who can still remember. So it's very new for people in America to think about a Black person having full agency. So um, it is, some some people admit to me that it's unthinkable for them to think about Haiti as a black nation and um when I say yeah we've been independent since 1804 someone corrected me the other day they're like are you sure it's not 1904 I'm like well I know my my history thank you it's 1804 it's been quite a long time and a lot of people are trying to understand okay you've been independent since 1804, there's always chaos, there's always um, something going on, it's violent, and they're trying to understand that part.
0: But it's the background, and it's so important to understand your work. You started your literary career when you were just 16. You self-published your first novel, Le Feu de la Vengeance, and then you had a book contract with Hachette, no less. You have gone on to publish a great many works, published in 2015, your memoir, A Sky, the Colour of Chaos, which is recommended reading for all our listeners. And you have been a professor at Miami-Dade College. Now, your book seems to me to be a sort of Tony Robbins for African American young women it, it's actually about being black in america and how to stand your ground and be the person you have every right and know you can be yes
1: that is um well the the choice of the title was very deliberate so um there's still a part of me that is very very childlike i remember what it was to grow up in Haiti as a teenager and grown-ups lecturing you on what you should do to be successful. Some of it you listened to, some of it you didn't. So I wanted to be very approachable. So it's not necessarily that I wanted a title that didn't take itself too seriously, but I wanted to be able to relate to a younger audience so that it's not a pompous title. It's something that piqued their curiosity. So that's why I decided to go with badass, particularly since there has been an attempt to uh, use this word like an everyday word as opposed to a curse word. It's just become that word that describes someone who's uh, someone who knows who she is, someone who's who knows her worth and is um, just going after what she wants, right? So for the girls reading the book, I just seem to want to be that old person who thinks she knows everything, although I do know a lot, but I wanted to kind of relate to that younger audience. And I grew up reading a lot of those self-help books. It's funny that you um, compare the book to Tony Robbins books because I've read a lot of his work. And I also read a lot of those Seven Habits books growing up. Authors who wrote for Franklin Covey, all those books that were about self-empowerment. And the thing is, I learned a lot from them, but I always felt that I wasn't the real audience for those books. They were mostly talking to people who were um, living in America, who had a a, a certain, a a certain, um, who belonged to a certain class, right, who had things that were relatively easy for them. We're talking about a girl who was reading those books with a candle because there's no electricity. You're talking about a girl who hasn't gone to school that day because Port-au-Prince is burning. There are crowds in the streets asking for change. You're talking about a girl was dealing with topics such as um, poverty surrounding her or colorism. You're talking about a girl who was expected to do girly stuff. Like um, my first book, which is a novel, surprised everyone because it was a horror novel and I was expected to write romance and I was expected to be a man to be part of that literary club in Haiti, right? So I wanted to to find a book that would tell me, hey, little girl, I see you. I I see your blackness. I see the questions that you have about your your place in the world. I see how much more you want to accomplish to accomplish uh, in comparison to what the world sees for you and i decided to write this book so i wanted it, i wanted that book to be approachable but as black girl um, so the name i guess has this um, lightness to it but it's a very serious book when you really look at it, it it's it's presenting the information in approachable ways but it's touching us on subjects that are very important, vital topics of discussion for young black
0: girls. Somebody said, uh, Marie Kezia Theodore Ferrell, who wrote Beauty Walks in Nature said, MJ Fievre gives every girl her own set of black pearls of wisdom. And another person, Ashley M. Jones, who wrote Magic City Gospel said, protecting our young black women and femme identifying youth is so important. MJ Fievre lays this out with grace, care, and the most powerful love in the phenomenal b- badass black girl. Young black women, what kind of reaction are you getting? I'm
1: getting um, very positive reactions. A few, a few um, questions, for sure. So I get a lot of letters from parents, parents who bought the book for their kids and then realized, oh, this book is all also talking to me. And they emailed me to tell me, you know what? I bought it for my daughter. I had to get a second copy because I'm reading it and I want to keep it for myself. Um, That was a a common reaction. People sending me messages on Facebook or finding my email or going to my website, badassblackgirl.com and sending me those messages. So for sure, I know that parents are reading those books which makes sense because as I mentioned, when I was growing up in the 90s, there, there was no book like this. So you have like this one. So you have a lot of people, uh, while well, my age or older, would never had the opportunity to read books that that address um, those topics, right? That allow them to understand um, what it is to be a black person in the world, but um, I agree that there is an aspect that is universal. I had um, as part of my better reader group, I had two people who are non-Black and they said the same thing, that a lot of the advice provided in the book is universal, that they did get a lot lot from the book. For instance, um, some of the advice that I give um, about the, being, grat- being grateful, right? Practicing gratitude. I give a lot of um, fun activities that people can do so that they appreciate their lives a little bit more because that's one of the th- things you want to do when you're having a very bad day or um, a few bad weeks and you're trying to figure out how to improve your life. Um, seeing the positive is definitely important for you to be able to sort through your feelings and acknowledge what's working so that you can fix what needs fixing. So some strategies were very helpful to people across the board. Um, I I did get some negative reaction. I remember that a, a few people on social media strongly expressed their anger. They wanted to know why I was writing a book just for Black people they told me that I was being v- very divisive, that why not just call it Badass Girl? And it talked to all girls. Why was I trying to create division by just talking to a group of people? But the answer to that is really simple. Um, there are many, many books that are addressed to supposedly all girls. But as I explained, when I read those books, I felt like I was other. And there were topics that were not covered in those books that needed to be covered. I didn't want to write a book that was for everybody. Although as we discussed, there are parts that are universal. I wanted to be able to focus on what was missing in the market. If you're looking for books for uh, everyone, they exist. I mean, if you go on Amazon and you put self-empowerment or self-help, and you go into the juvenile section, you will find some great books, way less than we need, but um, we definitely have some books available for just everyone.
0: I want to spend the last few minutes, MJ, talking about your parents and how very important they've been in raising you to literature, raising you to magic, magic in terms of narrative, possibilities, uh, mythology, if you like, in the Haitian context. The idea of fabulism as a, an essential part of creativity. And do you believe that America as a whole, not Florida, because Florida has many immigrant communities where that is a key part of daily life and daily existence. But do you think America as a whole, the literary body, needs more fabulism and mythology? My parents
1: were definitely instrumental in helping me discover the power of storytelling and um, opening the door to Haitian folklore and um, everything that it encompasses. My parents are, um, well, my dad passed, but when he was alive, he was also a a voracious reader, my mom as well. And I think that Haiti itself just everyday lends itself to storytelling. When we had family gathering, Um, more than dancing it was people sitting down and telling stories and I remember that every evening I have to say that I was lucky in the sense that we had breakfast together as a family and we had dinner together and when my parents would tell about their days you could see this natural penchant for storytelling. It wasn't, oh, I did this, and then I did this. The way they spoke, the way they talked about their day, you could see the storyteller in each of them. And it has to do with how they were raised. Haiti is really rich in terms of storytelling. People will will tell you about their day as if they're telling you a story. So that part was really important in terms of appreciating storytelling, and they made a vibrant effort in, in introducing us to um, the, the lore, right, getting us uh, books about Haitian folklore, making sure that we knew All the traditional stories, not just from Haiti, but from the Caribbean, and even expanding it to other countries. I was very young when I started reading the the Brothers Grimm or Charles Perrault from from um, France, and we read different versions of those stories. It wasn't it it wasn't just the, the appropriate child. A child story that parents tend to read, as soon as we were able to handle the original Grimm stories, the stories that were actually pretty gruesome in comparison to the, to what I call the disney version of those stories, we read them and there was so much appreciation for what they meant, the lessons they carried, and how stories in Haiti can be very similar to stories being told in other parts of the world. Um, When I came to Florida, I fell in love with the fact that there are so many immigrants. So you get to learn not just about America, but about all those other countries and sharing stories. I remember as a teacher, um, really enjoying the kids sharing their version of of certain stories what they had learned from their parents from their grandparents and in other places of America you find so much art and so so many books inspired by worldwide literature Um, I remember watching an episode of Supernatural and I'm like oh This is based on Haitian folklore um, or New Orleans folklore, because a lot of the stories have to do with the voodoo religion, right? So this idea of uh, standing at the crossroad and calling uh, deities, it's so typical of Haitian um, storytelling a crossroads are very, very important and in parts of Louisiana as well. So um, I was able to recognize through the books I was reading, through um the the, the movies that are being made in, in the US, that there is um this feeling that we're all connected because so many stories from from around the world are used in literature and in filmmaking. Um, I, I do think that the, the schools could benefit a little bit more from um, teaching our kids about those stories. There has been a big move um, recently, and that's part of the reason why I left teaching, when the accent was put too much on nonfiction as opposed to fiction. I think that both of them should be balanced, that a kid needs to develop their imagination, um, yes, nonfiction is really important to understand the world and to be able to, un- to, to appreciate the news and be a critical thinker. But I think that fiction does a lot too in terms of making you um, becoming this analytical being and seeing the world for what it could be. And I, think- and I
0: would argue, MJ, and this is my final question, I think fiction, fabulism, mythology is so very important in helping people survive the real world. I mean, Haiti has been through Hurricane Jeanne in 2004, then in 2008, there were terrible storms. And of course, January 2010, there was a seven earthquake. It was all over the news, absolute disaster. Then cholera in 2010 and now COVID. So you could argue that the ugliness, the horror The misery of everyday existence cannot be denied, but perhaps in some small chink of light, the listening to stories help people survive. What is happening with COVID? You're not in, you've obviously left Haiti some time ago. What do you hear about family and friends back in Haiti about COVID? Obviously the the president was just assassinated. What is going on with COVID and how are people surviving?
1: is bad i mean i've left haiti but i still have family there and we talk every day we text every day and it's been very unreal i've been getting um very bad news people i grew up with names that i knew within the community i'm learning that people have been dying recently i lost um two teachers to to, two of my high school teachers to covid and um Within the writing community, a few other people who I met in the past, and just learning about their death has been quite shocking and, um, as I said, unreal. Things are not getting better. I mean, for a while, Haiti thought that. Haitians had been spared because the first wave of COVID did not really affect Haiti that much. People were getting sick, but they were recovering very fast and um, people were dying, but those numbers were nothing compared to what they should have been. Um, So there was a lot of hope in terms of maybe Haitians having some kind of resistance because of Um, issues that are endemic to the environment there but then with the second strand and a few of the others that that have arrived in Haiti the situation shifted quite suddenly so people are getting sick um, and it's not just numbers with no emotional attachment right your those numbers are huge so they they really affect your perception of how things are going you realize oh my god haiti is is in trouble but it's also getting all those names of people you actually know that is making it very real it's no longer statistics it's um being able to link those deaths to people you actually met in your life or that you know about or people who were actually close to you so um Haiti is now dealing with, with the situation post-assassination um, um, in addition to what they were already dealing with. You mentioned um, the earthquake, the cholera outbreak, and um, there's been a lot of cases of kidnappings lately. Um, personal safety has been a huge, huge issue. and that didn't change with the death of the president. People are still being killed. Um, I mean, it's incredible the amount of violence that has been going on in the country. It started under the president, which is which is part of the reason why they wanted him out, but it's still going on now that he is gone. And again, it's um, it's close to home. I have had one call one classmate. Um, I studied my college years in Haiti, and one of my classmates was kidnapped with a son and held for two years, two, two weeks. My sister, um, my sister's two coworkers, two brothers, they they were also kidnapped and kept for over a week against ransom. So there's this feeling of doom and gloom. But I mean, Haitians are, are still fighting. There is no getting used to it. They they understand that they have to keep fighting. That getting get, getting blasé is not gonna get anyone anywhere. The loss is real. The violence is real, and people there are still fighting.
0: So in all that chaos, grief, horror, misery, one can only hope that some young. Haitian women, read your book, Badass Black Girl, with questions, quotes, and affirmations for teens to somehow find a space to survive. M.J. Fievre, your book, Badass Black Girl, is published by Mango Publishing, widely available, highly recommended, not just for badass black girls. Thank you very much indeed for speaking to us today.
1: Thank you so much. My pleasure. Thank you for inviting me.